the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. On AM 1420, The Answer. It is indeed the Bob France Authority Gun O'Clock. Thanks for joining us on this Monday, the 10th morning of the sixth month of the year of our Lord, 2019. Great conversations, both uh, by uh, two great guests uh, this morning. And Congressman Jordan mentioned at the end there he was uh, congratulating me or thanking me or something for uh, my role uh, in the Gibsons saga, um, I will take no thanks nor congratulations for it. Um, I, I just became aware of it, and I brought it to the airwaves. Now, if that did have an impact on, you know, um, the Gibsons, perhaps, maybe we'll, we can look at it that way. If I'm struggling and reaching to find a reason to say that I played a role, maybe the the power of the airwaves, which I think did lead to of an awful lot of people coming down to Oberlin and in support of Gibson's, not just from Lorain County, Ohio, but from around Ohio. And I remember being down there uh, on some of the events in which we were showing support. I remember people coming from Pennsylvania saying they came here because they heard it on the radio. They listened via uh, our uh, web, web stream. And they came out just to support the business from Pennsylvania because it was that important to them. I think they were motorcycle riders. They just wanted a cruise. And they came out to uh, Oberlin to do that. Um, if that helped embolden the Gibsons into filing the lawsuit, thinking, you know what, we have a lot of support. There are people on our side. Maybe we should do this because it's not easy. Jim Jordan said it. Jim Jordan is 100% right when he said, look, it's the, the easy thing to do would be to just say, well, we got burned. You know, by that college and what they did, and you know, but we just got to cut our losses here and try to push forward, and hopefully this will all go away at some point. They could have, they could have just taken it, but it takes courage, it takes guts to stand up in a court of law to hire attorneys and to pay for the attorneys on in the hopes that you're successful and that you win the judgment and that you can cover your attorney's fees through that. It's gutsy to file the lawsuit. 
you know, they were in the right, and that was obviously clear to almost everybody not at the uh, Oberlin College, at Oberlin College. But it's hard to do. And so if the public sentiment and support maybe that we did through the media uh, helped make that decision, then that's about the extent of it. But, uh, again, I'll give thanks once again to my friend Chris. Uh, Chris Gorin in uh, in Wellington is uh, the person who texted me and said, hey, Bob, you got to see what's going on down at Oberlin. And I said, what? And she told me about it. And I went down there. She went down there with her husband. And we all kind of uh, wanted to go down there and kind of, I won't say counter-protest, we didn't counter-protest, um, but we wanted to see uh, what was going on at the protest. Uh, I talked to some of the Oberlin College young uh, uh, indoctrinate, indoctrinated uh, uh, disciples of liberal social justice theology, and it is. It's almost a religion to them. But I talked to them, and I wanted to find out what they were doing and why they were doing it and to point out the ridiculousness of what they were doing and was confronted by the dean of students, who was one of the defendants in this lawsuit. And... Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was happy to be there, and I was happy to shine a spotlight on it. I was happy to put uh, some of the Gibsons on the radio and to talk about this terrible thing. I did reach out to Congressman Jim Jordan to see if there's anything that could be done from the uh, Congress. It's his district, uh, from the congressman's office, and he met me there, and we met with the Gibsons and learned the whole backstory and everything else. So I did what I could, but at the end of the day, this was about the courage of the Gibsons family, and it was about a jury that was listening, a jury that was paying attention. You cannot libel, you cannot slander, you cannot try to publicly destroy a business all because you didn't like the results of a presidential election. And I am convinced that that had a lot to do with the way this whole thing played out. If those three shoplifters at Gibson's had done it just on a regular, ordinary day in in May or something, and things were just, you know, know, uh, business as usual, um, and they got arrested... I don't think that the protests even happen. I don't think that the student body goes out of their way to protest because Gibson says called uh, the cops on shoplifters many times in the past, black and white, because they've been trying to save their business. It was reported, and I talked to people who saw it, that there are, there are little signs on bulletin boards in dorm rooms at Orbel, in the freshman dorms saying you haven't uh, become an Oberlin, something, I'm paraphrasing, you haven't become an Oberlin College student until you steal something from Gibson's. It's like a right of initiation. you got to go steal something from Gibson's. So Gibson's has been dealing with shoplifting and losing a percentage of profits every single year, and it's only when those profits start to get, or those percentages start to get larger and larger and larger, they're like, we got to start calling the cops. They don't want to call the cops on everybody. They don't want to call the cops and give people records because they're idiot, you know, 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds doing pranks like stealing. But eventually they have to. And through the years, they've done it so many times uh, because of the uh, uh, pervasiveness and the brazenness of the of the students I feel like if this had just been a regular old situation like that in May or another month, it would not have been what it was. But the leftists on the faculty and in the classrooms and dorms at the People's Republic of Oberlin College were livid. The night before all this happened, Donald Trump won the presidency. Hillary Clinton lost. They were livid. And then when they found out something happened at Gibson's and some of our students were arrested and blah, 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 their their anger was up. Their they're, they were they were just they were PPO they were the people of or party of perpetual outrage they were going to go and do something and that's the way it all turned out and here we are three years later it's only going to cost them roughly forty four million dollars now I'm guessing on that last part the eleven point two million dollar judgment is indeed entered into the record but now the punitive hearing tomorrow 
could triple that amount. And I don't know if that's triple in place of the 11 million or on top of the 11 million. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's on top of and that $33 million in punitive damages will be awarded by this jury on top of the $11 million awarded in the um, uh, merits of the lawsuit. All right, um, so if you want to talk Gibsons, we can do that. If you want to talk about uh, the news of the day, obviously we just got done talking with Congressman Jordan about John Dean going to testify before the House House Judiciary Committee for some unknown reason today. There's a lot of other things to get into, so let's go to the phones. Uh, TJ in Cleveland is in first. He wants to talk about John Dean. Hey, uh, TJ, go ahead. Hi, Bob. First of all, I want to say your show does a lot of good, Bob. And the big thing it does, people out there that feel so all alone realize they're not so much alone. There's a lot like them. But, you know, well, I, 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 well, I, I, I agree with that, not on behalf of my show, but you're right, TJ. Um, I got a very sweet letter from a lady. I get a lot of letters from, from people who are a little older who don't do the computer thing and don't email and, and, and whatnot. So I get handwritten letters from folks. And I just got, I got a sweet letter from a very sweet lady who um, uh, sent a number of things. But among them was what you just said, TJ. She, and I just opened this up on Saturday, I think it was. She said, um, uh, she said, uh, between you and your regular callers, you know, because there is a regular, it's like a bar. You have to have regulars. You always welcome newcomers to your bar, but you have a, a, a number of regulars that keep it going. You're one of them who said you and your regular callers really do make us feel like we're not alone. And, and that is extremely important. And I think any time you can, you know, you can surround yourself with like-minded people to remind yourself that you are not alone, that you're not the swimming uphill against an insurmountable, you know, uh, against insurmountable odds, that can be helpful to all of us. So, uh, if you're going to give me credit for that, TJ, then you should take some yourself as well as one of the regulars. Well, I'll do that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. No, Bob, you know, if I was, uh, Congressman Jordan, the question I'd like to ask Dean, I would say, you know, Mr. Dean, you're brought up here as supposedly an expert witness on obstruction of justice, so I would like to have your opinion on this. When Hillary Clinton destroyed 33,000 emails, bleach-bit Nasset watched her uh, server, destroyed her Blackberries, now, in your professional opinion, would that rise to obstruction of justice? You could have a lot of fun with this one. And throw That's it right a really interesting question. And it's a legitimate question. If you're an expert on this, what's your opinion on what she did? Is this obstruction or isn't it? I mean, throw it right back in their court. If you can contact Congressman Jordan, please, Bob. Have yeah. that well, you know, chances are pretty good, TJ, and, and thank you, my man, for the phone call again, and 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 for being a regular. Chances are pretty good they've thought of that as well. Um, and and here's a little bit of a positive uh, uh, story on that, or, or however you want to phrase this. Um, the fact that they're bringing in somebody who has absolutely nothing to do with this and no knowledge of this. Um, it, it really does shine a spotlight on their desperation. And as I said, it's kind of funny and it's kind of not. They, they are so desperate. Andy Biggs, another congressional Republican, Andy Biggs wrote a piece on this, essentially saying that this would be comical that they're bringing in John Dean if it weren't so desperate. And that's what it is. He wrote this for Fox News. If you thought that the theater of the absurd that is the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee couldn't be more farcical, you were wrong. At least absurdist theater has serious a serious component and attempts to provoke introspection. Chairman Jerry 
Again, I'll call him comedian. Comedian Jerry Nadler, Democrat in New York, and his minions are so determined to impeach President Trump, they're resorting to vaudevillian comedic gimmicks by bringing in none other than convicted felon and Watergate mastermind John Dean to testify on Monday afternoon. And you're so right. A guy convicted of obstructing justice is going to go ahead and testify on obstruction of justice? This, this makes no sense. But back to Biggs, who writes, For any who can't remember or never heard of John Dean, which is most of America, he was convicted of obstruction of justice in the early 70s during Watergate. Think of the determination of my fellow colleagues. House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings from Michigan decided that he that the foundational first witness to lay the groundwork for impeachment would be someone who had already been convicted of lying to Congress, Michael Cohen. Cohen's testimony went over so well that Cummings' buddy, Chairman Jerry Nadler, decided that hearing from another convicted felon is just the spark they needed to recharge this flagging impeachment investigation of President Trump. Frankly, writes Andy Biggs, when I heard that Nadler was relying on John Dean for Monday's hearing, I thought my staff was punking me. But as it turns out, John Dean will be Chairman Nadler's special witness. The FBI at the time the master manipulator of the cover-up in the Watergate scandal. The former Attorney General said that Dean was the center of the criminality of Watergate. The special counsel at the time found 19 material discrepancies between Dean's sworn testimony and the White House recordings. Think of it. He lied, which was provable because there were actual recordings that contradicted Dean's statements 19 times. Seems like someone the Democrats can rely on. So think about that. This is what they do. They want to bring Michael Cohen, a confirmed and convicted liar. They want to bring now John Dean, a confirmed and convicted liar. And the other part that's funny about this uh, that TJ pointed out as far as, you know, the obstruction of justice and going to the Hillary side of things is that they're turning on one another. The rats, the deep staters are literally turning on one another. The latest example of that, Andy McCabe. The former deputy director of the FBI turning on Jim Comey, his boss and friend, the former director of the FBI, specifically as it relates to the Clinton investigation. So, TJ, you want to hear about that, uh, and you want them to ask Dean about that today. I hope they will, but I'll share the rest of that part of the story coming up next on AM 1420, The Answer. It's the Bob France Authority here. On AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1026, now the Bob Brands Authority continuing. On AM 1420, The Answer. So yeah, just to what TJ was talking about, I said, why doesn't somebody ask John Dean if he's appearing before the Judiciary Committee today um, as an expert on obstruction of justice, and that's what he's there to testify to. He knows nothing about the Mueller report, was not a material witness, did not have any firsthand knowledge of anything that the Russians did or didn't do uh, in the terms of the 2016 election interference. He's just being brought in as an expert in the area of obstruction of justice, in large part because he committed it. <laughs> that's just so very Democrat. I mean, seriously, how, how dem of you, uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, comedian of the uh, of the House Judiciary Committee, it, it's hysterical. Um, TJ wanted somebody to ask them if he's an expert. Ask him if he's an expert on uh, obstruction of justice. Uh, what about Hillary deleting thirty thousand emails, bleach bidding? I got a microphone on there, so if somebody could turn your mic off in the air uh, control room, thank you. Um, 
if you uh, uh, if you look at uh, thirty thousand emails deleted and bleach bit uh, servers and the Im- implementation, the building, the installation of those uh, homemade servers, so you could avoid having to use the government servers and therefore could do whatever you wanted to do without being followed and watched by oversight uh, members, uh, oversight uh, uh, people. Uh, with Hillary Clinton, what about that as far as obstruction? Well, here's where I'll go with that. I told you some of the rats are turning on one another. Former Deputy Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe. Speaking of former Director of the FBI, James Comey. Speaking about James Comey's decision to write Hillary Clinton's exoneration letter two months before hearing all of the witness testimony and, indeed, before hearing from Hillary herself. Quote, this is the only time I'm aware of, sir. I have not seen that before, sir. I've never seen that. Those three quotes came from former uh, FBI director, acting FBI director, and deputy director Andrew McCabe. When asked during closed-door testimony about an email penned by disgraced ex-FBI director James Comey circulating a draft statement exonerating Hillary in the private email service case a full two months before the FBI interviewed her and other witnesses in that probe. Documents previously released by the FBI show Comey on May 2, 2016, sent the email in question to McCabe. FBI General Counsel, Counsel James Baker and Chief of Staff and Senior Counselor James Rybicki. Clinton was interviewed by the FBI on June 2nd, with Comey later testifying that she was not sworn in and that the interview was not recorded. Two months before Clinton's FBI interview, Comey circulated the draft statement test, uh, testing language to be used for not recommending charges against Clinton. Uh, now, if obstruction of justice has ever been plainer than it is here, I don't know where and when. Former Rep. Bob Goodlad, who served as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee at the time of McCabe's December 21, 2017 testimony, read aloud Comey's email. A transcript of that testimony was released three weeks ago by House Judiciary Committee ranking member Doug Collins from Georgia, although the portion in question did not receive media attention. Goodlad read Comey's email as follows, quote, the penultimate paragraph of the May 2nd draft reads as follows. Accordingly, although the Department of Justice makes final decisions on matters such as this, I am completing the investigation by expressing to justice my view that no charges are appropriate in this case. No charges are appropriate in this case. He decided on May 2nd, two months before the completion of the investigation, and before Hillary Clinton herself even testified. If there has ever been a plainer case of of obstruction of justice, there it is. FBI Director James Comey, number one, taking the role away from the Attorney General in the DOJ of making decisions on whether or not charges will be brought, and number two, swaying that himself by deciding the outcome before he ever found the evidence. In other words, what he what he did is he made the determination, then looked for evidence to support his decision, rather than looking for evidence to find out what it is and then making a determination based upon that evidence. That was James Comey. All right, ten thirty one. Quick time out. Let's get you on the phones. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five. Ten thirty-five. Onward we roll. 
until 11 o'clock. Then the roll stops, and we allow Mr. Gallagher to roll on through. Mike Gallagher will take you until noon. Dennis Prager, or the Dennis Prager Show, anyway. Dennis is off this week. I will be in for him on Friday's show, by the way. Looking forward to that. Dr. G, Jay Secular, Larry Elder, stay right here all day, all night on AM 1420, The Answer. For the best in conservative news, discussion, analysis, and free of buffoonery uh, that is so pervasive in other Cleveland uh, radio locations. Uh, let's talk obstruction of justice with Brett, who's calling us from Worcester. Brett, you are on AM 1420, The Answer. Go right ahead. Good morning, Bob. <laughs> you know, this whole obstruction of justice thing, you have to realize that Democrats can't be charged with anything. It's, it must be a law written somewhere. I mean, it's it's prevalent in everything that they do. You know, you look at what's going on with uh, Cummins on the House Oversight Committee with his wife and the controversies there. There's never going to be any charges against any Democrat with any meaningful substance, in my opinion. I, th- I think you're right. I don't think it's even an opinion. I think it's fact. I don't know why it got to, it came to be that way, but I don't think we can even dispute that any longer. Um, yeah. They they find a way. You know, even when the Republicans were in control of the of the of the Congress, even after President Trump took office and started to institute his people, there were still Obama loyalists, otherwise known as deep staters in the DOJ, that would not act against Democrats. Um, you know, here we are. How many years after the uh, uh, targeting under former AG uh, Eric Holder and AG Loretta Lynch uh, of the IRS, or excuse me, of uh, uh, conservative groups and Tea Party groups by the IRS? I mean, they, there are so many examples well, of them committing crimes well, that they are never charged with. You're, you know, yeah. you can't even dispute it anymore, my man. Yeah, you're exactly right. But you know, it's all in the spirit of bipartisanship. We have to ignore these things. Once we have to move off, move beyond these things, right? <laughs> Isn't that, isn't that the edict? Yeah, well, that's what we're told, uh, except that when President Trump wins in the spirit of bipartisanship, we say you have to challenge his victory for the next four oh, years. Yeah. Then. And we have to look at the last 20 years of anything that he may have may or may not have done. We have to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. comb. You know, never mind the fact that, you know, had he done anything illegally, you know, from an IRS perspective, they would have charged him with that already. So he's, you know... Why are we going to go through these things? You know, and all those financial records and everything else. Why do we need to do this just to look for a crime? This is exactly why we became a republic. You know, to you know, we don't look at the person try to find a crime. We find a crime and find and try to find out who committed that crime. So it's right, but but not, not but that's not the Democrat playbook. You're right. The exact opposite is in Democrat lingo. It's show me the man, I will find you his crime. Give me somebody exactly. that you want to take down. I'll find something he did. And that's what Trump has faced, honestly. And we can we can really go back, Brett. Not even since he was not, uh, inaugurated, or even since he was elected. This started beforehand, which is why we continue to be. At least I do. I'm amazed by the language, just as blatant as it can be, between Strzok and Page and the text messages and emails uh, that said we need an insurance policy in case he wins. So before he even won the election, they started going after him to look for crimes, uh, so that they could invalidate his election. It's it's unprecedented in American oh, it, history. It's scary. It's very scary to have the weight of the government just to go look at this. You know, the, the whole FISA thing, it's a lot deeper, I think, because how many Americans have been spied on by our CIA, by our FBI, unbeknownst to them? And how many lies have been told that FISA court just, hey, we need this person is doing this. We need to find out. Uh, you know, it's it goes back to the Clintons with the 900 FBI broad FBI files on. Their political enemies that were found in the White House. I think it 
it goes back to that. It's scary. Yeah, it, it it does, and it is, and I could not agree with you more, Brett, and I appreciate your phone call, my friend. Right. Thanks very much. If you want to weigh in on this, by what, by the way, please do so at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Again, you know, I'll, I'll finish the part of the story that I did not get to before the last break, uh, talking about McCabe turning on Comey. Uh, it wasn't really turning on. He was giving sworn testimony. He kind of had to tell the truth. He was giving sworn testimony, closed doors, to the... Um, uh, Judiciary Committee in 2017, back on December 21st, 2017, when the Republicans were still in power and Bob Goodlatte was the chairman of the Ju- Judiciary Committee. And I read to you what Goodlatte read uh, in Comey's letter. Accordingly, although the Department of Justice makes final decisions on matters such as this, I am completing the investigation by expressing to justice my view that no charges are appropriate in this case. Goodlatte noted that this paragraph is virtually identical to what Director Comey said more than two months later, July 25th, in recommending no charges against Hillary Clinton. It seems to confirm that the FBI, including the director, had made up its mind not to charge Clinton before ever interviewing her. And then when interviewing her, not placing her under oath and not recording it. So it's just whatever we think we recall that she said that she didn't even have to be honest about because there was no threat of perjury. McCabe disputed the characterization, the deputy uh, FBI director, saying it may seem that way reading it now, but I know that Director Comey had not made up his mind at that time. McCabe then, though, repeatedly stated he was never aware of any other precedent similar to this, this draft statement against recommending charges two months before Clinton was even interviewed. He was talking to North Carolina Representative and Freedom Caucus co-founder, Mark Meadows. Meadows said to McCabe, so is this common practice in normal investigation of every type to do a memo two months ahead of time to lay out what you're going to say with a conclusion? So let's take it outside of this particular person. How many other times does that happen? And McCabe replied, no, sir, it's not common. Meadows, so this is a unique situation where he did it this one time. McCabe, this is the only time I'm aware of, sir. Meadows, is this case so unique that you would have a prepared document two months ahead of interviewing the witness? Is that the normal protocol within the FBI? McCabe, it is not normal protocol within the FBI to release a statement about a case. Meadows, that's not the question I asked, Mr. McCabe. McCabe, we believed we were going to. Meadows, is it normal protocol? Is it normal protocol to draft a letter by the FBI two months before you interview the witness to draw a conclusion? Is that normal protocol? McCabe, I have not seen that before, sir. So your answer is no, it's not normal protocol. McCabe, I'm not aware of that protocol. I've never seen that. I haven't been through an experience like this in the pendency of my career. So no, I've never seen that before. Meadows, I yield back. So it was proven, and this was in closed-door testimony only made available recently, which is why we're bringing it up now. And why it matters now is because, again, they are going after Bill Barr. They're going after Don McGahn. They're trying to impeach the president on obstruction of justice. And yet they absolutely did nothing about actual obstruction of justice by the former FBI director who decided... Hillary Clinton's innocence, and wrote the memo declaring as much before ever interviewing her or the rest of the relevant witnesses. He wrote his conclusion, then set out in search of facts to support it.
That is the very definition of obstruction of justice. Because justice was never allowed to take place or even begin to, you know, to, to, to be considered. McCabe's statement on the matter, statements on the matter, may take on renewed significance after the release of FBI emails last week showing, among, among other things, that Comey's agency in 2016 sought to expeditiously accommodate a request for information from Clinton's lawyer. Judicial Watch obtained and released the emails between a controversial former FBI officials, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. These are the ones I was talking about. These incredible documents show the leadership of the FBI rushed to give Hillary Clinton her FBI interview report shortly before the election. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton charged. And the documents also show the FBI failed to timely document interviews in the Clinton email matter, further confirming the whole investigation was a joke. End quote. Tom Fitton's right. There has never been, and so was Andy McCabe, there has never been a situation like this before. The deck is stacked against everything Trump. Quite literally, they have changed the rules all in order to take down Trump. The same investigatory or investigative processes that have been used against Trump were never used against Hillary Clinton and, quite frankly, have never been used by anyone When we say this is unprecedented, what Donald Trump is enduring, and again, I know he's not, you know, coochie-coo. I know he's not the most um, magnificent speaker. And I know he really takes, you know, years off of people's lives with every tweet because you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know how it's going to be spelled or capitalized. It's going to look very, very juvenile. And these things happen. But none of that, none of that justifies the unprecedented... um, conspiracy quite frankly against him there is a conspiracy to invalidate a sitting president's election and an ongoing movement to end that presidency it has just literally been uh, never been done before not to this level not in this manner there was a great piece about a week and a half ago um which kind of detailed this by byron york and it, it's it's why i don't have time to read the whole thing to you but by, by byron york wrote this for the washington examiner And I'll give you just a little bit of it. That law enforcement and the media both have changed standards for Trump. One of the more unfortunate effects of the Trump-Russia investigation, and there have been many, is the weakening of traditional standards of argument and proof in the public debate over allegations that the Trump campaign conspired with Russia to fix the 2016 election. And, of course, it didn't. In particular, angry disputes about the president have done terrible harm to the principle of that to the principle that an investigator, be it a journalist or a prosecutor, should meet at least some standard of proof before leveling, leveling an accusation. Two examples: first, the so-called Steele dossier, the collection of wild allegations against Trump compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. Steele's unfounded accusations that there was a years-long, well-developed conspiracy between Trump and Russia, that Trump accepted a regular flow of intelligence from the Kremlin, and that Russian spies taped Trump watching prostitutes perform a kinky sex act in a Moscow hotel room in 2013, circulated throughout law enforcement and political circles starting in the summer of 2016. That just happened to be the time the Clinton campaign and some in the media began accusing Trump of colluding with Russia to gain an advantage in the election. Top Clinton staff received updates on Steele's material. Then they accused Trump of collusion. FBI investigators who also had the dossier were trying to confirm it and failed. Without any evidence to prove any of the dossier's most serious allegations, a new standard of proof emerged. 
the allegations were legitimate because they had not been proven untrue. I'm going to pause there. I want you to think about where you've heard that before. Byron York points out, the allegations against Trump and his team were legitimate because they had not been proven untrue. It's the exact same thing that the Mueller report said, and that Bob Mueller in his nine-and-a-half-minute press conference or press statement uh, about a week and a half ago made clear. The standard of proof has changed from having to prove someone guilty, rather the new proof, at least in, uh, in, in, in the world of President Trump or in the case of President Trump, is he has to prove that he's innocent. They don't have to prove that he's guilty. He has to prove that he's innocent. Mueller did that with the entire report on obstruction. Well, we don't have any proof that Donald Trump obstructed justice. But we don't have any proof that he didn't. So therefore, you can draw your own conclusion and assume that he did. That has never been the standard of proof. That has never been the standard in any investigation or any trial or anything else, really, in the history of, of, of the American criminal justice system. And since we're now just the investigative phase, I would just say in the, American, in, in the history of the American government. Without any evidence to prove any of the dossier's most serious allegations, the new standard of proof became the allegations were legitimate because Trump had not proven them to be untrue. Leading figures in politics, back to um, Byron York. Leading figures in politics and journalism adopted the new standard. Not a single revelation in the Steele dossier has been refuted, said Dianne Feinstein, top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I'm aware of nothing in Christopher Steele's dossier that has been shown to be false, said Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. So far with this dossier, nothing has yet been proven, proven untrue, said Chuck Todd, host of Meet the Press. The new Trump standard turned the old standard, can an allegation be proven true, on its head. It's not surprising that commentators, especially those with partisan motives, would adopt such a low standard. It was surprising when, and this is example number two, that Trump-Russia special counsel Robert Mueller upended the justice system's traditional norms by declaring that his investigation, while not accusing the president of committing a crime, also could not exonerate him. If we had confidence that after a thorough investigation of the facts, the president did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state, Mueller said. Based on the facts and applicable legal standards, we are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Mueller repeated that point in his recent public statement. It was a mind-blowing moment for some Justice Department veterans. Since when do prosecutors hand out certificates of exoneration to the people they investigate? Answer, they don't. Since when has not exonerated been an accepted legal outcome? As in, how does the jury find the defendant? We find him not exonerated. Answer, never. Mueller, just like Feinstein and Tribe and Todd before him, changed widely accepted standards, casting the shadow of guilt on Trump without formally accusing him of wrongdoing. Except Mueller, unlike the senator... The law professor and the journalist wielded the prosecutorial power of the United States. Given the length and thoroughness of his investigation, Mueller's no-exoneration verdict carried a lot of weight in the public debate, except that it doesn't mean anything, while at the same time suggesting to the public that the president had committed some unspecified offense. Trump's critics often accuse him of violating the norms that make our society and government work. 
Yet in their discussion of the dossier, some of those critics violated essential norms of fairness and accuracy. And in Mueller's no-exoneration gambit, a storied figure in American law enforcement abandoned one of the most important standards of justice. The damage done could be uh, could last a long time. All right, I guess I did give it all to you because I needed to, to bring that clarity. 10.52, let's get one final uh, time out here. We'll try to come back in with a call or two and uh, a couple of other reminders about how important it is that we stand up for religious liberty. Next on AM 1420, The Answer. Bob France, here on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, it is 10.55, final segment of the broadcast, and another opportunity to remind you about how incredibly important our religious liberty is, and more importantly, how under attack it really is. We've told you so many stories. Let me tell you now about Brush and Nib, the Brush and Nib studio. In January 2015, after first meeting at a Bible study where they learned about their mutual passions for art, Two young women met at a North Phoenix Starbucks Starbucks over tea and hot chocolate and hatched a plan to create and sell art together. They quickly agreed to start a calligraphy and hand-painting business. One of them, Joanna Duca, had already left her full-time marketing job to do this. The other, Brianna Koski, had no job but had just moved to town and had just gotten married. So neither one had ever started a business, but they got together. They had no business background, but they put it together, and their passion for art produced Brush and Nib Studio a for-profit art studio that creates hand-drawn invitations and paintings for things like weddings and businesses and everyday moments. Very simple. They started their business. They were taking care of every customer who came to them until, yeah, you can imagine, it happened again. A Phoenix law was requiring, let me back up just a step here, as they started their business, They had seen the same news reports you and I see and talk about all the time, forcing Christians in the wedding industry to promote same-sex wedding ceremonies or face all kinds of penalties, fines, and threats from government. So meanwhile, their friends began to ask them if Brush and Nib would promote same-sex wedding ceremonies. They saw the ensuing social media frenzy over the Supreme Court, creating a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, and they realized they might not have the freedom to create art consistent with their religious beliefs, they had to find out for sure. And what they found out was this. A Phoenix law required Brush and Nib to create invitations and other artwork for same-sex wedding ceremonies. It also pre- prevented them from explaining to customers and the public why they could only create art consistent with their beliefs about marriage. And this, uh, this law did uh, all of this through criminal penalties. For each day they followed their religious beliefs and disobeyed the law, they would be penalized up to $2,500 and six months in jail. This is the story of the Brush and Nib studio owners, Joanna and Brianna. This is Joanna Duca and Brianna Koski, owners and artistic team behind Brush and Nib Studio. Their passion and mission is sharing God's beauty through their creation with their clients. The city of Phoenix, however, is posing a threat to that very mission. Joanna and Brianna are required to create artwork that would conflict with their Christian beliefs. They'd also be prohibited from publicly expressing that they can only create art that's consistent with their beliefs about marriage. They face the possibility of a $2,500 fine and even up to six months in jail. Alliance Defending Freedom has filed suit on their behalf so they're free to create and speak about their art in a way consistent with their beliefs. 
on May in May of 2016, Alliance Defending filed uh, Defending Freedom rather filed that lawsuit on their behalf, and that case is still pending. And guess what? Alliance Defending Freedom is still battling for them, free of charge. That's right. Brush and Nib pay nothing for those legal services. That is only possible through our assistance. So once again, we have a goal. This month, we are helping Alliance Defending Freedom so that they can help people like these two artists, as well as Baron L. Stutzman, as, as well as Jack Phillips, and more. We had a goal of 45 people donating $100 each. We are now down to 27. That's all we need is 27 more people to donate. We will reach our goal, and we will help defend religious liberty. I need you to be the next one to stand up. Call this number, 800-691-8969. Please call that number if you can donate $100, 800-691-8969, or do it online, whkradio.com, and click on the Alliance Defending Freedom banner at the top of the page. If you can donate 100 do it. If you can donate 200 do it. If you can only donate 50 do it. But please help them because they are helping us. That's all we've got for you today. Thanks for being a part of the show. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher is next. We'll Enjoy see you tomorrow. The silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.